I think this is an incredibly important topic. I mean, obviously, the world of energy has been front and center for the last year and a half. But the role of nuclear energy has also been in debate within the environmental movement itself uh, for a dozen years. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me Dr. Chris Kiefer. He's an emergency room physician, but he's also president of the Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, he's, uh, by the way, the host of the podcast, of the Decouple podcast. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for finding time for us. I just think, as I said, essential subject to get. I, I just want people to have the facts. You know, I mean, they can have their own opinion. I believe that on everything we do here. But I mm-hmm. just see there are just so many misleading facts when it comes to and misleading statements when it comes to nuclear energy. I mean, it, it must be a lonely battle uphill when you first started, at least. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, you're right. There's a lot to clear up. Um, and, you know, pushing back against anti-nuclear mythology is a challenge because um, their arguments are very much based on seeding fear, uncertainty, and doubt on appeals to emotion. Um, And we've got to fight back with facts. And that can be tricky, uh, but there's a way to do it. And I think um, we're doing a good job of it. And that's starting to really bear fruit. Um, I was going to say, yes, you've had results. And I'll get to those in a sec. But just to follow up, I mean, it's like we are all trapped in that Three Mile Island movie, or that uh, Chernobyl, you know, and, uh, and Fukushima too, of course. But things have changed since then. You know, I mean, a lot. It's like pretending cars hadn't changed, or technology in other areas haven't changed uh, since those events. So, well, I mean, it's funny bringing up those events because they're often talked about, um, you know, in in the public uh, media and public forums as you know catastrophes, as disasters. I mean, Three Three Mile Island was a costly industrial accident. The radiation dose, the max dose to members of the public, uh, was no higher than a chest X-ray. Now, I'm an emergency physician. Um, radiation is a little bit more tangible to me. It isn't invisible. Uh, but I dose people every single shift in the emergency department. And I have parents coming in begging me to do a CT scan on their toddler after they bump their head on the edge of the table, for instance. So there's a real kind of misperception there. Um, and obviously, there's an enormous benefits to radiation um, that you know I see in healthcare and that we are you know, surrounded by around us, uh, in modern society. Um, but it's useful to have those comparators to, to put these, these incidents, um, into perspective. Well, what a great example though. I mean, being somebody who just recently had a CT, you know what I mean? Like you're right, we beg Mm -hmm, for them mm -hmm. and and we complain we can't get them fast enough. So that's a fascinating example. Uh, but it's also, you know, I mean, there's so many areas that I hear about, but your, your, your point that it's an emotional debate, I think is a starting point that, uh, but I, I mean, certainly in many other areas, we, we start with, let's scare the hell out of people and see if we can control their behavior that way. But this has been just such a relentless stream, but I, I'm going to give a little more positive note, but I suspense there's a suspect especially thanks to what's going on in Europe with energy and the importance of energy, maybe some progress is getting made. Yeah, you know, we've been living a pretty easy decade. Um, Between 2010 and 2020, every single source of primary energy dropped peak to trough by 90%. We're talking oil, gas, uranium, coal. It's been easy streets. And, you know, we had access to the cheapest credit in the history of credit. 
You know, insurance rates have been at historic lows. Um, you know, something changed. And it's not just the Russian invasion, which obviously sent a shockwave through Europe. Um, you know, as you know, this is a continent that um, is really priding itself on on leading on climate change. They've certainly installed a lot of weather harvesting machines, uh, wind turbines and solar panels. Um, but the reality is, is that those assets are entirely dependent um, upon a resilient backup system. They've patted themselves on the back for shutting down some coal plants in places like the UK, uh, but they've substituted largely with gas. And when the uh, gas main was was shut off by Putin's war, um, they've been thrown into a major crisis. And that's really rippled all around the world um, with skyrocketing energy costs. But I was in Europe um, before the Russian invasion back uh, for actually the climate conference in Scotland, um, <laughs> uh, in Glasgow in 2021. And even at that point, um, Europe was in the throes of a, a weather emergency of a of a climate event. It wasn't a hurricane; it was actually a wind drought. Um, historic lows in terms of wind production all across Europe for that year. And before that Russian invasion, coal, for example, number one source of electricity generation in a place like Germany. Now I'm an Ontario boy, and right here in my backyard, we made burning coal illegal, and. That's a hard thing to do, particularly if you're not just swapping gas for coal. Um, we did it in a carbon-free way. We did it with nuclear, which provided 90% of the energy to completely eliminate coal off of our grid. Um, so, you know, for these these big sort of existential questions around, around climate and energy, um, you know, there are answers, there are examples, but they're not being talked about. Um, and so, again, it's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to be able to chat with you and, and hopefully clarify some things. If you could, and I mean, I'm, I'm doing the, the Barbara Walters here and, and asking you to sum up, but if, there, if you could grab like three myths that come to mind for you when it comes to, uh, you know, using nuclear energy, what comes to mind? Well, I mean, we can just work our way through some of the objections. I, I'd like to do that, but I'd also like the opportunity to try and paint out a positive vision because, yes, absolutely. you know, as nuclear advocates, we often get painted into this hole of just constantly being on the defense. And there's a lot of great things to talk about. Um, one of the stories, though, that I think is most misunderstood, and you'll hear this all the time, we shouldn't be doing any more nuclear until we find a permanent solution to the issue of nuclear waste. Waste is held up as this kind of existential threat. Um, where nuclear waste should really be thought of as a strength of the technology. I mean, the miracle of fissioning of uranium, uranium atoms um, is that it has on the order of 2 million times more energy density than something like coal. That means you need 2 million times less fuel, and that means about 2 million times less waste that's produced. And so if you imagine a coal plant running around the clock, um, you know, the invisible CO2, which is actually a, a large volume is one thing, but the coal ash that, that piles up that needs to be disposed of. Um, with nuclear, you're able to create such a tiny volume of waste that you can pack it away in these steel and concrete containers. I've toured a number of facilities now um, at the Bruce Nuclear Station, the Darlington Nuclear Station, where, where these waste cans are. Um, you know, they're perfectly ordered. Um, you know, they fill a, a, a warehouse the size of about a Costco, and they just sit there, right? And you, you look at one of these containers, right? It's probably about 14 feet high, you know, maybe eight feet wide, eight feet deep. And that, that, uh, the waste in one of those containers corresponds to about a month of power for the greater Toronto area, you know, an area of 6 million people. And you're producing so little waste that it can just sit right there, you know, not putting any um, CO2 emissions to the air, let alone air pollution, water pollution or anything. And there's this kind of paradox because on the one hand, nuclear waste is incredibly dangerous. 
if you if you stood next to unshielded nuclear waste straight out of the reactor, you'd be dead in a matter of seconds, right? But there's this paradox. In modern society, we make dangerous things safe. And I'll take you on a little detour here. But if you think about aviation, uh, most Canadians have had the good fortune to have been able to fly in an aircraft. You're up at 30,000 feet in a very complex piece of machinery, probably 10,000 mission-critical moving parts. You're going something like 800 kilometers an hour, um, you know, 30,000 feet up. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. We've somehow made aviation incredibly safe. There's something like 4.5 billion passenger trips every single year. Um, and yet we average about 150 casualties per year, right? This is objectively a very dangerous thing to be doing. We take it for granted, right? The storage of nuclear waste is orders of magnitude simpler, right? We have to put the waste in water for five to 10 years to let it cool down. In that time, 99% of the radioactivity is gone. And then we need to package it into these containers. Within 600 years, you could take a spent can-do fuel bundle and hold it in your hands, right? And you've returned it to a level of radioactivity similar to the ore body from which it was taken over in Saskatchewan. So if you want to put that back in the ground, you've really closed the loop. And you're putting something that's as radioactive as the ore that itself was mined back underground. Of course, there's other uses for the waste. You know, we only extract about 5% of the energy uh, from the uranium in our current generation of reactors. Um, there are operating reactors in Russia right now, which are called fast-spectrum reactors, that can fission the remaining 95% of the energy left over um, in what we call waste. And what I think is better referred to as, you know, very partially used spent nuclear fuel. So this is really an opportunity um, the, the issue of waste or of spent nuclear fuel is an opportunity. It should not be seen as, as a danger. Unfortunately, you know, the way that the industry responds to criticisms of waste very much plays into the hands of, you know, the misguided environmentalists that are fighting against nuclear energy. Um, and it just turns it into a larger and larger sort of bogeyman. But, you know, in summary, we've made a real mountain out of a mohill, and it's been a costly distraction from um, the really effective action that, again, we've taken in places like Ontario where we have, you know, definitively put an end to coal burning, for instance, and have one of the world's lowest carbon grids. Well, one of the things I also noticed in the entire energy debate is we act as if it's it's on its own. Like you were giving a comparison between that and coal as if, oh, oil never has an accident. And, and, I'm, and I'm saying mm -hmm. the other thing I should have said up front is that there is no recorded deaths from being exposed to nuclear waste, you know, they've, they, in the storage, yeah. you know, they have people working in the storage. We've had no, you know, uh, yeah. negative deaths, but we act as if there's no other, uh, you know, fallout like, Oh, nobody ever got hurt in oil. Nobody ever got hurt in coal. There's no emissions from any of those. You know, I just find it's, it's a comparative issue here. And the advantages, right. it seems to me of nuclear are just uh, starting with the energy density that you alluded to, which made me think of this is that, you know, it seems to be a, hand, a hands down winner. Absolutely. And I mean, the comparisons we need to be making are with, you know, the other potentially scalable climate solutions, other low carbon sources of energy. And that's a pretty limited basket, right? In places like Iceland, where you have um, tectonic plates, you know, close to the surface, um, you can uh, harness geothermal energy, great, great source of energy, but very marginal. Um, Canada's, you know, really built its uh, electricity generation infrastructure largely with hydroelectricity. Um, you know, amazing engineering achievements, but we've we've, we've tapped out the best rivers. Um, we've tapped out the best spots. Um, and, you know, we have to make those kind of decisions. Decisions which used to split the environmental community, by the way, between flooding massive valleys or doing something like nuclear 
which has an absolutely tiny footprint from the mine right through to the power plant itself. But, you know, the commonly spoken about options are wind and solar. And these are held up um, as being, you know, as clean as the wind and the sun itself. And it's a nice story. But the reality is, um, is that these are also machines um, and they are produced from minerals and from chemical and industrial processes, which have an environmental environmental impact. And they're quite large, especially because those environmental impacts are happening out of our backyards, out of sight, out of mind. Um, the rare earth mineral production um, largely happening in China, very poor environmental regulations, um, not to mention labor regulations. You know, and we talk a lot about a just transition for, for fossil fuel workers and for humanity in general. I mean, the, the solar supply chain is so contaminated by Uyghur forced labor. That's a um, ethnicity in China that's being, uh, you know, controlled in this kind of dystopian surveillance state. And um, some stuff very reminiscent to some of Canada's shameful past in terms of Uyghur children being placed in essentially residential schools and uh, not being allowed to practice their culture, their language, that kind of stuff's going on. And because China dominates the solar supply chain so completely, 97% of solar wafers um, are produced in China, it's tinged by this. Now, this is just the production side, but in terms of the performance of wind and solar, um, these are intermittent sources. Like it's it's an obvious uh, an obvious fact. Um, not just that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, but they often don't do those things, and they often don't do those things at the same time, which leaves gaping holes in electricity production. And you know, in addition to being a physician who works with equipment that needs to be reliably powered every second of every day, I'm also the father of a four year old who spent the first five weeks of his life in an incubator. I take reliability very seriously. We talk about heading into a world of, you know, electrify everything. Well, if that electricity isn't ultra reliable, a lot of people die when the lights go out. And so, you know, we have run experiments now um, in Germany, for instance, where they've spent uh, close to half a trillion dollars, mostly on a wind and solar geared uh, so-called energy transition. And as I mentioned, even before the Russian invasion, still critically dependent on coal as the number one source of electricity. So we've, we've seen what works. We've seen what hasn't worked. Um, the issue here is really, I think, one of, of communications where um, the nuclear success stories have been neglected. We really accidentally decarbonized with nuclear because we built most of it you know, between the 70s and 90s when climate wasn't a concern. But wow, look at that. A place like France, for instance, um, you know, in the course of 15 years, uh, brought 54 nuclear reactors online and accidentally decarbonized their electricity system. I mean, these are extraordinary stories and they have extraordinary relevance to the concerns of today. Um, and so it, it takes, you know, voices like my own and a growing group of, of advocates around the world, I think, to, to bring these to the forefront and hopefully bring some sanity back to uh, the discourse. Because you know, I think a lot of our politicians um, are, are blind to this. And the other thing I'm seeing, but I'm being more hopeful. I mean, look at the success you had in Ontario in extending the life of, you know, uh, the Pickering nuclear plant. I mean, I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, but there's, that's not the only success story. There was some success in California, but it's also, I'm looking at uh, South Korea saying, and Japan, I mean, speaking yeah. of Fukushima, look at Japan saying we're recommitting in this way, let alone India, let alone China. The list is yeah. a long one. I mean, I, I think the tide is, has turned, not as even turning has turned. For sure. For sure. And, you know, part of that is public opinion, uh, but part of it is just physics. 
The challenge that we have with climate change is not just to produce lots of clean energy. It's to replace fossil fuel services, right? And again, that's why nuclear substituted very well for coal. It provides those same services of around-the-clock, reliable energy uh, production. And whenever fossil fuels become scarce or unavailable, people turn towards nuclear energy. These are the sort of small island nations without their own fossil fuel resources, places like Japan, for instance, there's a reason Japan, you know, was about almost 40, 40% nuclear powered. It's because they ran out of their coal and they now import coal and gas. And that's what drives their whole uh, electricity grid and much of their economy. And so nuclear provides this a very cheap fuel, uh, a ton of reliability and energy security. Think of South Korea, for instance, you know, functionally an island because of that, uh, you know, uh, demilitarized zone between North and South. Uh, again, um, not rich in fossil fuels. France as well. This is a country where the saying was, we do not have oil, but we have ideas. Um, you know, they built this massive nuclear fleet in the midst of the OPEC crisis when they were, you know, cut off from affordable Middle Eastern oil. Uh, it's the same story around the world. And so it's only natural as fossil fuel prices start to really um, skyrocket out of control that nuclear is very much back on the table. And again, particularly for um, Eastern European uh, neighbors of Russia who are, you know, this isn't just a game for them. This, and, and, you know, climate change is a noble aspiration. But, you know, again, having interacted quite a bit with politics and politicians, there's often more pragmatic drivers of their decision making. And I'm happy to talk more about the Pickering situation. But, you know, having a neighbor who can utterly control you via energy um, is a real motivation to get your house in order and, and you know, build a future based on energy security. And we're seeing that even Ukraine right now is talking in the midst of this war about building four new nuclear reactors, um, again, to further um, achieve the, the kind of independence they require, um, because energy is, is the secret ingredient in everything. And, and just, you know, come back to Pickering, uh, you know, you're president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, can you just tell me what was the what was the obstacle because they were going to shut down the plant? So what was the mm -hmm. obstacle in the minds of the politicians you dealt with? What what were they what were you having to deal with and overcome? Right. Well, just a little bit of context to start. Um, you know, we run Kandu nuclear reactors here in Canada. That's a design that we came up with on our own um, to get around some of the limitations of, you know, not being able to enrich our own uranium and not having the heavy forging to build the big pressure vessels of, you know, the reactors that we see more commonplace around the world. It's an incredible design. Uh, it's really probably the safest uh, design out there. Um, there's been no significant incidents whatsoever regarding uh, with regard to a Kandu. Um, they're designed to have a refurbishment. Um, so you swap out components every 30 years. Um, you know, at least one refurbishment, probably more possible. Um, so that gives the plants, you know, a 60 to 80 year lifespan. So a number of those plants are up on that 30 to 40 year sort of midlife uh, uh, timeline where we can refurbish them and, and give them again another 30 or 40 years. We built or we commissioned 22 of these large candy nuclear reactors in 22 years. And that's given us 15% of the whole country's electricity supply, carbon-free, you know, with a minimal impact and with a huge economic impact. Because again, this design being all Canadian means that when we spend a dollar on it, we don't send it off to China for, you know, a wind turbine or a solar panel. We don't send it to the States to buy, you know, their coal or natural gas. Um, it goes into good union jobs mostly um, and recycles in our communities, into our factories, into our economies. Um, so in any case, Pickering is is one of these these crown jewel stations. Um, eight large Kandu nuclear reactors, um, six are currently operational, 
And the plan had been to shut them down. And why was that? Um, well, you know, the fracking revolution changed a lot of things. There was talk about a nuclear renaissance in the early 2000s, say 2005, 2006. And that was put to bed by historically low natural gas prices, um, which really changed the economics of electricity generation in the U.S. and, and really around the world. Natural gas actually, you know, wasn't thought of as being that that bad of a fossil fuel. It's got about half the carbon intensity of coal. It burns a lot cleaner. Even the mainstream environmental organizations were funded by natural gas. And in Ontario, for instance, um, they were very upset that we use nuclear instead of natural gas to phase out coal. Um, so those those are really the big reasons why why the Pickering refurbishment wasn't being looked into. The other was this idea that well, you know, demand has not gone up as much as we anticipated. There was a great recession, obviously, of two thousand eight, a lot of deindustrialization. Um, so those those factors changed a lot um, in the interim period. We're now talking in Ontario about needing to double or triple our grid. Um, you know, with electrification, uh, with reshoring, you know, obviously this conflict with Russia has really shown us that, you know, we're maybe at the end of uh, a globalized uh, globalization narrative and needing to particularly reshore critical industries. Those all require energy. So bottom line, um, you know, my organization was really at the forefront of keeping the flame alive on fighting for refurbishment. We produced a 26-page policy report, um, got into the hands of the premier and the energy minister uh, via some contacts in in labor. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a perfect storm. The, the conditions uh, arrived um, and the decision was revisited and luckily the right decision was made. And, you know, it, it is for a life extension and investigation of refurbishment. But, you know, my, my sources, you know, within industry, within labor, within government, um, are all pointing towards this being essentially a done deal. I think we can look forward to that nuclear plant continuing to power the greater Toronto area and avoid the the equivalent of six to eight million transatlantic flights worth of CO2 every single year. Um, let me just, uh, you know, I've kept you a little longer, but I, if you look out on the whole nuclear sphere and that we're seeing a lot of technological innovation going on right now, what excites you most? Is anything you saw, you read and you went, oh my gosh. Listen, I mean, there, there's some really neat opportunities here. Um, nuclear's obviously proven itself as a very reliable source of electricity generation. Um, if we're talking again about replacing fossil fuel services, we have to be looking at process heat, um, which fossil fuels um, are, are delivering right now. Um, so there are some exciting, you know, novel reactor concepts that can deliver that. I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in the sense that um, we have a lot of work to do on the electrification side. Um, and that, you know, Nuclear is hard. It really demands uh, a culture of excellence uh, from the workers, project managers, et cetera. But it also requires a cohesive national industrial policy. And, you know, we're on the eve of this nuclear renaissance, and I'm very worried that Canada is going to fumble an incredible advantage that we've had. Um, we've spent $26 billion on this uh, can refurbishment process, which, you know, again, maintains 15% of our national electricity supplies uh, for another 30 or 40 years. Sounds like a lot of money. But, you know, compared to our big wind and solar spend in Ontario, six zero sixty billion dollars very affordable. Now, that investment wasn't just in the infrastructure. It's in the human resources, critically. It's in the project managers. It's in the skilled trades. Um, it's in all of the professionals and the supply chain, which is there, geared up, ready to build can-do nuclear. Um, so we'd be, frankly, quite foolish to fumble this baton. I think of it as a relay race. You know, we've refurbished these Canada reactors. We know them. They're operating better than they ever have. Um, we have the people and the factories teed up, ready to go. 
Um, it makes perfect sense for us to move into building some new Kandu reactors ASAP. We know the demand is going to be there. Um, and so that's kind of the next phase after this you know, fight to save Pickering that my organization is working on is trying to encourage a cohesive national industrial policy, which can, again, harness the benefits of domestic nuclear energy of this very special can-do design to be the backbone of our nuclear industry. Certainly, we need to be exploring these other avenues um, for process heat and and other activities, Um, but that needs to build in a cohesive way um, out of uh, out of an industrial policy um, that can take advantage of of the lead time that we have and the excellence that we have here in Canada. Well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I think the people in the natural gas industry might be nodding your head about the worry you have. We won't take advantage of a natural uh, opportunity that we have. Massive opportunity, though. I mean, energy is front mm-hmm. and center. Number one, you know, poster child for we just figured out we need it. <laughs> you know, some people have, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and the yeah. opportunity is massive. What's what's incredible to me, you've been living this. It's what's fantastic that you as a citizen, as an emergency room doctor, have taken up this cause. I know how much, you know, the amount of time it takes, the dedication, the passion it takes, you and the team you work with. Uh, but it just seems it's sitting there right in front of us. If climate change is your issue, you think you'd be talking about stuff that has a smaller footprint, that has no carbon footprint, but I mean, uh, you know, energy density issues, all sorts of things that go on, but proven. The track record is out there. We're not having to guess. We're not 40 years ago and saying, gee, maybe this will happen. Uh, as I say, it's a message that has to get out there. And I, I hope I close my eyes in 10 years and 20 years. Well, I'll be dead in 20 years, but close my eyes in 10 years. And and really common sense has taken over because I think, and again, I'm not putting words in your mouth. The lack of common sense in energy policy throughout the Western world has been astounding. You know, and I, I did say it glibly earlier in the show, gee, the sun doesn't shine when it's dark out. You know, I mean, we're at that level. and and That's mind boggling. The advantages of nuclear are there, track records there. I just congratulate you on the work that you've done and uh, making progress in the way you have and bringing that. And I so much appreciate you finding time for us. Oh, thank you very much. Good to be on. We'll be visiting again. Chris, I'm going to call you again. So just be <laughs> ready. Good. Okay. Sounds good. Dr. Chris Kiefer, uh, great stuff. President of the Canadians for Nuclear Energy. He's an emergency room uh, doctor, as I said, but he's also host of the Decouple podcast. So look that up, Dr. Chris Kiefer.